is to begin next week and the week following to teach on Christmas and the Christmas story. Uh, But this week we are continuing in where we left off in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 is our text today. I remember when I first realized that you could hide lessons in fiction stories. You could hide lessons in fiction stories. And I'm not just talking about when you grow up and you hear little, little stories of things that have clear moral lessons. I'm talking about like long fiction novels. I remember when I first realized that people hid lessons in those. Because in high school, we were assigned Animal Farm by George Orwell. And when we first had to read that, we were like, okay, we've got to read a story about talking animals. What, what is this for? And slowly, what we came to realize was that it wasn't really about talking animals. It was actually about the Soviet Union and Stalin and communism and all that stuff. And I, I, I just had kind of a, an epiphany, and I was like, oh, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Because of, of how you can get that lesson to someone in a way they didn't expect. And then I came across the story of King David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up by murdering her husband. And in that story, after that all happens, the way that David is brought to repentance is that God sends the prophet Nathan to him with a story. Do you remember this? The prophet Nathan comes to David with a story about an injustice done by a rich man to a poor man. And David's anger is kindled as he hears this story and says, this rich man, he deserves to die. And Nathan then looks at him and turns it on him and says, you are that man. That's you. And then David feels the full force of it. Nathan disarmed David with the story to get him to feel the the full force of the injustice. And he smuggled the truth in through the side door, if you will, before David realized it was about him. I once heard a man named Alexander White say of that passage, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew that he had a sword. I love that. Well, stories are like that. Stories have a subversive power to deliver truths to us that we might otherwise be resistant to. Sometimes the lessons that our parents were trying to teach us for years are driven home and finally embraced after we read a wonderful novel presenting those same virtues in its characters. There are countless examples out there of believers, Christian believers, who first started to explore the faith as a result of reading the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings. It happens all the time. And so stories have this power, this subversive power to to smuggle truth in through the side door, if you will, disarming us and thereby kind of opening us up to the power of that truth in a way we wouldn't otherwise have been open to it. Jesus does this all the time throughout his ministry with parables, with parables. And today he does it with one of his parables. In fact, this parable is much like Jesus having a sword and the, 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 the hearers of the parable don't realize it until the sword's already so close to them. Let's read our text. I'll show you what we mean. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Mark writes, And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants. 
and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. I want to look at three parts to this text today. First, we're going to look at Jesus' parables, not just this parable, but Jesus' parables in general. Second, we're going to see God's messengers. And then finally, we're going to see three lessons from this text for us. So first, Jesus' parables. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, it says, he began to speak to them in parables. Them who? Who is he speaking to? Well, for us, it's been a week in between the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, verse 1 here. But it's actually the same situation, the same scene, the same conversation. Last week, we looked at that conversation in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. This is the same scene. Jesus is around the same men, the same group of people. And so if you look at verse 27 of chapter 11, it says, They had come to him again to Jerusalem. Uh, or they, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And then they have this conversation, which includes what we just read. So we've got the religious leaders of Jerusalem speaking with Jesus here. That's who he tells this parable to. It's the same conversation as last week's sermon. That's important, and you'll see why here in just a bit. Now, back up for a moment, let's zoom out and ask the question then, why does Jesus begin to speak to them in parables? That's what verse 1 says. He began to speak to them in parables. Why does Jesus do this? Well, if you remember, and you might not remember this at all, back in May, we looked at Mark 4. All the way back in May, Mark 4, the parable of the sower. And in that sermon, we saw that Jesus explained to his disciples why. He taught so often in parables. Jesus actually gave the reason why he taught in parables. And his reasoning was not what you would expect. What you would expect Jesus to say when people ask, why do you teach in parables? What you would expect him to say is something along the lines of, well, I'm trying to take deep spiritual truths and make them accessible to people in in terms that they understand their everyday life. That's what you would expect Jesus to say. But that's not what he says when they ask, why do you speak in parables? Listen to Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
The reason why Jesus spoke in parables was to draw a dividing line in the sand. Parables were a litmus test, if you will. And what they did was they revealed whose hearts were soft and open to God, or as Jesus kind of explains it sometimes, who had ears to hear. Right? Whose hearts were soft and open, who had ears to hear, and then it also revealed whose hearts were hard and closed to God. For those whose hearts were open, the parables would draw them in. They would draw them closer to Jesus. But for those whose hearts were closed, parables further hardened them and pushed them away. And this was Jesus' intention. John MacArthur, in his very helpful book on parables, writes this. While the parables do illustrate and clarify truth for those with ears to hear, they have precisely the opposite effect on those who oppose and reject Christ. The symbolism hides the truth from anyone without the discipline or desire to seek out Christ's meaning. That's why Jesus adopted that style of teaching. Watch this. He says, it was a divine judgment against those who met his teaching with scorn, unbelief, or apathy. And so, this parable is not just a parable about judgment. This parable is itself a judgment against those who hear it. This is not just a parable about judgment, it is. But this parable itself is a judgment against those who hear Look at verse 12 with me in our text. Verse 12, it says, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. And then it says, they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Ironically, they could discern that Jesus was telling this parable against them. The surprising part about this is most of the time when Jesus taught in parables, those with closed hearts could not discern the deeper meaning of it. Most of the time, those with Hard hearts could not discern the deeper meaning, but here they can, and it makes no difference. They can discern the deeper meaning, and it makes no difference. They still refuse to repent. Their discernment only caused them to try harder to kill Jesus. And in just a few days from this conversation, in just a few days from this conversation, they will do exactly that. And they will unwittingly become those tenants who killed the beloved son. This is an amazing scene. They will become, without even knowing it, the tenants that Jesus is speaking to them of, even though they discern that he tells the parable against them. And so we see Jesus' use of parables here. But second, I want to speak about God's messengers because that's what the parable is really about. God sending his messengers. It says the owner of the vineyard sent servant after servant after servant. We are meant to see here in this parable a reference to the Old Testament prophets on up to and including John the Baptist. The Old Testament prophets and also John the Baptist. That's who we're meant to see in this parable. We know this because the last servant he sent was his own beloved son. We know who that is. Right? We know who that is. And the servants before that were his prophets. Now, why did God send prophets to his people over and over and over again? Why did God do that? He sent his prophets primarily to warn his people. In the Old Testament, that's the, the primary message you get as you read the prophets. They were sent to warn 
God's people, to turn them back from sin and rebellion against God. But what did God's people do time and time again when he sent them, his messengers? They would refuse to listen. Listen to what 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16 says. And I think Jesus actually probably had this in his head as he's telling this parable here. 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God keeps sending his prophets and they keep rejecting them. In the New Testament, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says this in Luke 11. Luke eleven forty seven. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. You see what Jesus is saying there. He's saying you're in league with your fathers, with your ancestors who killed those prophets because you're building their tombs. They killed them, you build the tombs. It's like like a nice little arrangement. They kill them, you build the tombs. And then he says, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So this shows us that God sends warnings via his messengers. God sends warnings to his people for two reasons. Number one, God sends warnings to people so that some will repent and be saved from the wrath to come. God sends warnings so that some people will repent and be saved from the wrath to come. But he also sends warnings for a second reason. So that those who refuse to listen will have no excuse on the day of judgment. Those who refused to listen will have no excuse on the day of judgment. This is one of the reasons why Jesus speaks this parable. Because even though they discern it's about them, they still become the evil tenants who kill the beloved son. They have no excuse excuse. Notice the final servant, the final messenger, verses 6 and 7. He had one more, one more left, a beloved son. He sent the son thinking, surely they're going to respect my son, but no, they, they killed him. They killed him. This is Jesus. In the story, this is Jesus. Remember, Jesus in last week's passage, has been questioned by these men, and they were asking him, who gave you the authority to come and do these things? Who gave you the authority to come in here in our temple and disrupt our practices and everything that we're doing in this Passover week, our traditions? Who gave you the authority to come disrupt all of this? Now, back in our passage last week, do you remember what Jesus' answer was to that question, who gave you the authority, who do you think you are? His answer was nothing. He didn't tell them. He did not tell them. But in the same conversation, remember, this is the same conversation as the text last week, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. In the same conversation, he does tell this parable. And this parable is a way of him answering them. In this parable, Jesus is saying to them, I have been sent by the owner. I I came up in your temple and I disrupted things. And you said, who do I think I am? Who, Who gave me the authority to do this? I've been sent by the owner of this whole place. 
and I am his, I am his son. I've been sent by the owner, and I am his beloved son. He quotes to them from Psalm 118 in verses 10 and 11. He says, have you not read this scripture? And they had. They, 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 they were experts in the law. Had you not read this scripture, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if we have any architecture experts in the audience, please excuse what I'm about to say, because this might not sound like it makes sense to you. But to someone who doesn't really know architecture, this illustration makes sense. So for all of those who who are not architects, you won't be distracted by this. But have patience with me if you are. Picture a a group of men building a building, an imposing structure of stone. And they're gathering stones for this building, and they have this one stone that, that just doesn't fit with any of the others. It's a, it's a crazy odd shape. It's, bu- it's big, it's sturdy, it's striking, but it's, it's completely different. It doesn't fit. And so they just cast it aside. They set it aside while they continue to build. But imagine a group of men building that structure, coming to the very end and thinking, we need only one more stone to, to, to perfect this building and to have it stand And it's such a weird shape, and then they slowly find it's the exact shape of that stone that they set aside. It's the exact shape that they needed, and this is the most important one. This is the one that's going to hold up everything and make everything make sense with the, the structure and the integrity of it. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and has become the most important of all the stones, the corner stone. This is Jesus that he's talking about in, the, in, the, in the, the story, the parable, the last servant, the beloved son. And so from this parable and from this text, I want to take away three lessons for us this morning. Three lessons. First lesson comes from verse 7. Verse 7. When the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The lesson here is sin is illogical. And sin causes us to think things that are illogical. What do these tenants think is going to happen? Do they really think they are going to be able to kill this man's son and then receive the inheritance that would have been his? That doesn't even make any sense by a long shot. But that's what sin does to us. Sin causes us to think things that don't make sense. Rebellion against God will cause you to think things that don't make any sense. We look at sin and we think, this will make me happy. There will be no consequences. I can hide this from God. We convince ourselves that God is fine with whatever sin we desperately want to do. We so desperately want to hold on to our sin, we reinterpret scripture in light of it. We think thoughts like, I am completely alone in this. No one sins or struggles like I do. Brothers and sisters, all of those are illogical. They don't make any sense whatsoever. And yet we all know what those feel like. Because sin makes you think things that don't make any sense. Sin is illogical. And so it is with these tenets. Lesson number two this morning. God's patience is extraordinary. God's patience is extraordinary. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, he sent his servant and they they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That was the first one. 
Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another. They killed him. And then it says, so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. And then finally, he sent his beloved son. The patience of this owner in the vineyard is absolutely extraordinary and surprising. Because after the first servant was mistreated, you would expect this owner to come down hard on the tenants for the, what they did. And, and we, w- we would not fault him for that. We would say that makes total sense. That's a, a good and wise man who, who holds them accountable, coming down hard for what they did to the very first one he sent. But no, he sent more and more and still others. His patience was surprising. Brothers and sisters, God is slow to anger. Scripture all over the Bible speaks of God as slow to anger. In one of the definitive descriptions of God, God describing himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6-7, he describes himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's patience is great. He is long-suffering. Many people think that God has a quick trigger. Many people have this view of God that, that he gets upset easily, that he pulls the trigger on his anger quickly. But you cannot come away with that idea if you honestly look at the whole Bible. It's the exact opposite. God's patience is extraordinary. We should be shocked. We should be shocked that God hasn't poured out his wrath more often. We should be shocked at that. Not shocked of the times when when it seems like maybe he has. His patience is extraordinary with us. Brothers and sisters, God is still today sending his messengers to warn his people. Now today, the people that he sends are not prophets with inspired words of scripture that that come straight from the mouth of God. And they are not men like John the Baptist or Jesus who having a a blessing of the Holy Spirit from birth were set apart in such a way. Not people like that. It's people like you and me. This normal everyday Christians that God has sent out to the world with his warnings. We are God's messengers. Scripture speaks of us like that. And we are to take God's message to the world. What is our message? What is the message that God has entrusted with us as his messengers and his servants that he has sent? Here's our message. The wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Pledge your allegiance to his son and ask for forgiveness and you can be right with this God. You can be right with God on the day when he brings his vengeance and his wrath on the world. If you just come to him through his son. That's our message. We are out proclaiming this message. It's like like a herald in the olden days, right? Hear ye, hear ye. Anyone who will listen, anyone in earshot, the king has a message for everyone. And the message is, you can be right with him, and he will not punish you for your sins against him if you come to him through his son. But the wrath is coming. There will come a day when it's too late. There will come a day when you can't make that choice anymore, so do so while you can. In Psalm 95, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, brothers and sisters, and those who, whom I cannot call my brothers and sisters, those of you who, 
who have not yet come to Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice in here, do not harden your hearts against it. At the judgment day, there will be so many people that the Lord holds accountable for hardening their hearts against the word that they heard that day and another day and another day and another day. They heard the words and they felt the Holy Spirit's conviction and they resisted time and time again. Don't be that person. The wrath of God is coming. It is coming for us all unless we are under the protective hand of Jesus. Unless we are under the protection of the blood of Jesus Christ. In which case you will be fully protected from the wrath of God that is coming for the world. There is coming a day when verse 9 will come true. Look at verse 9 in our text. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In Matthew's account of this parable, Jesus says, what will the owner do? He will put those wretches to a miserable death. No mercy, no compassion. There is coming a day when that's the way the Lord will treat all of those who have rejected him. And so... God's patience is extraordinary. See that this morning. But finally, God's inheritance can be yours. God's inheritance can be yours. Do you see how these wicked men in verse 7 thought, this is the heir, and they're true, that's, that's right. This is the heir, come let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. Now, illogically, they thought they could get the father's inheritance by killing his son doesn't make a lick of sense. But ironically, ironically, because the Son of God let himself be killed, we can receive the Father's inheritance. Understand that. Because the Son of God let himself be killed, we can receive the Father's inheritance. In fact, it is God's joy and his good pleasure to give his full inheritance to all who come to him through his son. That is God's joy and his great pleasure. It is an inheritance that scripture says can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you if you are in Christ and holding on to him by faith. It is an inheritance that is greater than all the riches in this world put together. And it is yours if you hold on and if you wait patiently for it. If you only hold on a little longer, you will be more wealthy than the wealthiest person on earth has ever been. And you will have the inheritance of the maker and creator of all the earth and the owner of all that is in it. Jesus says the meek will inherit what? The earth the world. They will inherit everything. And I want to leave you with this. Listen to Jesus's words from Luke 12, 32, and let them wash over you. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure 
to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. That's how Jesus speaks to us. Tenderly, with the care of a good shepherd. Fear not, little flock. God wants to give you the kingdom. And so just hold on. Hold on a little longer. And for those who are not yet in the fold, for those who are not yet one of his sheep, for those who are not yet holding on to Jesus, you can come in. There is room for you. All you have to do is come to him in faith and in repentance of your sins. And God is ready to give you the kingdom. He's ready to give you everything. I can't wait for it to happen. But we must wait. And so we will. We will wait on the Lord with patience and faith. And we will help one another until that day. Hold on to Jesus. And so that is where I leave us. Right now we're going to take a few moments and we're going to pray. We give this time every week after the sermon so that we can all go to the Lord in our hearts and respond to him. He has spoken to us and now we speak back to him. We encourage you to use these moments right now to pour out your heart to the Lord and to say whatever you need to say to him in response to what he has just said to you in your heart. And after we have a time where we can all do that individually, we'll have a time where we come back and we have an invitation for those who may need to respond to the Lord publicly. So let's pray for a few moments now.